The following sermon is by our senior pastor, Grant Castleberry of Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 9 o'clock a.m. every Sunday morning. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. I direct your attention to John chapter 6. I'm going to read the first 15 verses. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him keen, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. John 6 is one of those chapters in the Gospel of John that's just this titanic chapter. It's one of the most important chapters in the Gospel. It begins with this, probably Jesus' most public miracle, and this is the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. So that's significant. And then Jesus walks on water, going to the disciples in verses 16 to 21. And then beginning in verses 22 all the way to 59 is the famous bread of life discourse, which Jesus gave in the synagogue at Capernaum. And then after that, really tragically, is when the masses and even some of His disciples forsake the Lord Jesus. And that's in verses 60 to 71 when that abandonment happens. If you look at verse 1, Jesus, uh, it starts, I should say John, John starts by giving us this context. After this, he says, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, of course, after this follows John 5. John 5 was an unknown feast, an unnamed feast in 
Jerusalem, that feast probably happened six months to a year before this. So there's a huge time gap here. What John does in his gospel is he basically skips all of Jesus's Galilean ministry. Remember, Galilee was to the north, and Jesus had a massive preaching and healing ministry in Galilee. If you read the other gospels, uh, you see this. So, basically, uh, John includes the healing of the nobleman's son at the end of John 4, and then he skips the entire Galilean ministry and brings it to a conclusion here at John 6. You ask, well, why does he do that? Well, you have to remember, he's writing after Matthew, Mark, and Luke have already been written. He doesn't feel the need to include every detail. He tells us why he wrote this gospel, John 20, 31. He says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So, we must remember that John's writing so that you get the theology of the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants you to see the theological high points, and so he's very selective in the details that he includes. Now, to understand John chapter 6, I want you to turn, turn briefly all the way over to the prologue of John 1. The prologue of John 1 is verses 1 to 18, and really, the prologue is a summary of the entire gospel. And if you look at verse 16, verse 16 is the theological cipher for John 6. John 1.16 is one of the most important spiritual principles that you can ever learn. This is foundational for Christianity. Everybody knows John 3.16. You really need to know John 1.16. It's very short. It's very simple. Look at it. For from His fullness is grace upon grace. Where does grace come from? Simple answer, Christ. The fullness of Christ. All the grace in your life comes from Christ, His fullness. You can't get grace anywhere else. It's out of the overflow of Christ. From His fullness comes grace multiplied. John says grace upon grace. It's abundant, overflowing grace. Very simple principle. Very hard for us to learn that it's simply Christ. Where do you go to get grace? Christ. Where do you go to get grace? Christ. You have to go to Christ. There's no other place. There's no other name among men by which you can be saved. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is one mediator between God and man, and he has a name, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean for your Christian life? Where do you go when you need help? Christ. Where do you go when you need grace? Christ. Very simple, right? We have trouble applying it, though. And that's what we see in John 6. John 6 is simply Jesus teaching the masses, the crowd, that simple principle. And that's what the, the, the whole miracle, the feeding of the 5,000 illustrates. Where do you get grace? Christ. That's it. That's what you have to learn. 
All right, so let's trace this. Let me give you four headings to help you navigate through this text. The first is a superficial following. A superficial following. If you look at verse 1, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. So Jesus was on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. That's where most of the population was. If you think of, think of the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee is about seven miles wide, 13 miles long, and most of the towns were on the west side. That's where most of Jesus' ministry was. And what happens here is Jesus gets in a boat uh, Mark 6.32 says that they, they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. They cross over from west to east, to the northeast shore of the lake. Now, John notes that it's also called the Sea of Tiberias. That was the Roman name because Herod had built a town on the east side of the lake in honor of uh, Caesar Tiberius, okay? So Tiberius Caesar, there was a town named in his, his honor. So the Romans called it Sea of Tiberius. You could call it the, the, the Sea of Galilee, though. That's how the Jews knew it. Verse 2, a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So the crowd follows the Lord Jesus. They don't follow him in a boat, okay? So Jesus gets in the boat they walk around the north side of the lake. They can, if you've, you've been to the Sea of Galilee, you can see across the lake. They can see the boat that Jesus is in, and they start walking around, okay? And they're walking around from west to east. And the reason why they're doing this is because they couldn't get enough of Jesus, the verb, it, it's an imperfect verb that John uses, and it, and it implies continuous action. They were continuing to follow Christ because they kept seeing the signs, the miracles that he was doing. Signs is another word for a miracle. They kept seeing the signs that Jesus was doing on the sick, the healings, so they kept following him. The miracles to them were like a drug. They couldn't get enough. They kept wanting more and more. It was so stimulating and fascinating to them. It was uh, a great attraction. But we know that these very same people, if you just read through the very end of the chapter, are the same people that end up abandoning the Lord Jesus Christ. So we know it was a superficial attraction. I play a game sometimes with my kids, an ethical game. And what I do is I ask my children how to make basically ethical decisions. And I ask them, I give them scenarios, okay? And I say, okay, is this scenario the right thing to do? And they say, yes, it's either right or wrong. And then I say, okay, but what about the motive behind it? So there's four answers in this game. You can have a right, right, right action, right motive, a wrong, wrong, wrong action, wrong motive, a right, wrong, right action, wrong motive, or a wrong, right, wrong action, right motive. All right, are you confused? All right, okay. So uh, let me give you an easy one. You rob a bank because you want to be rich. What is that? Wrong, wrong. Wrong, wrong, okay, all right. You're awake, all right. All right, here, here's one. You steal some chicken eggs, wrong, to feed some hungry children during a war. Wrong, right. 
okay? All right, so let me give you another one. You help an old lady across the street to impress the boss who's with you. Right, wrong, right? Okay, what you have here is a right, wrong. Is it good that they're following Jesus? Yeah, yeah. The, the verb that, G, that John uses is akalutheo. It's the same verb that Jesus uses in Luke 9, 23, when he says, if anyone would come after me, he must follow me. Yeah, so it's the right thing. You, you should follow Jesus, but it's the wrong motive in which they're following him. And, and this is something that we have to think about and apply in our own lives and in our own hearts. These people were merely interested in Jesus the healer, Jesus the miracle worker, Jesus the teacher, but not Jesus the Savior. Not Jesus our Lord. And so what we have to do is we have to make sure that when we come to Christ, we come to Christ on His terms. His terms for the right reasons. We don't come to Christ so we can get X, Y, and Z. We come to Christ for grace. Grace upon grace. Because He's Lord. He's Savior. We must approach Him as that. It's not that Jesus is on our team. We have to come and submit to being on His team. Jesus refuses to be commandeered for our own programs and initiatives. We have to come to Him and submit to Him as Savior and Lord. That's the problem here, okay? So if you look at verse 3, Jesus gets to the other side of the lake, and it says He went up on the mountain, and there He sat down with His disciples. Now, that, that word mountain really is talking about a large hill, there's several large hills on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee, and, and, and what the topography looks like is you, you, you get to the other side of the lake, and there is a plain, okay? Think large, flat expanse of land, and then above that plain, behind it, is a hill, a large hill that you can look out and see for miles and miles and miles. And Jesus, needing much rest, and this happens, by the way, after he's heard the news of the death of his cousin, John the Baptist, is in mourning. And so he goes up on top of this hill, and he sits down with his disciples. Now, John gives us a time reference here. Verse 4, he says, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, is at hand. That means that this is taking place in the springtime, March or April. But this is an incredibly important theological statement. Jesus is no doubt looking backwards, remembering the Passover. Remember what happened in the Passover. God told the children of Israel to, to kill a lamb and put the blood on the mantle of the doors and the, the, uh, the post of the doors. And that night in Egypt, the angel of death would pass over their house. And while that happened, they would need to be inside. Remember doing what with the lamb? Eating the lamb. Eating all of the Paschal lamb. And then that very night, they were delivered from Egypt, and they go out into the wilderness. Now, how were they fed in the wilderness? How, how do you get food for 1.5 million people in a wilderness? You don't, right? 
You don't. How did God feed the children? Manna from heaven. Manna from heaven. That's exactly what Jesus is thinking about here. He says later on in verse 48, he says, I am the bread of life, and your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. He says, this is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. And of course, Jesus is looking forward. What happens in exactly one year from now? One year from this point, what happens? The last Passover, where Jesus gives himself as the Lamb of God. Right when those Passover lambs are being sacrificed, Jesus is being sacrificed on the cross as the ultimate fulfillment of Passover. It's from his fullness is grace upon grace, and that's what the crowd fails to understand. So that's a superficial following. Next we see, verse 5, a spiritual failure a spiritual failure. Look at verse 5. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him. John doesn't give us really much detail about what's taking place, but let me fill in the gaps with the other gospels. Jesus sees from this high vantage point on the hill this massive crowd now coming towards him. We learn later in this gospel that it's probably between fifteen and 20,000 people because there's 5,000 men, so it would be 15 to 20,000, including women and children. And Jesus, you know, you got to think, He's exhausted. He's mourning. He doesn't sit there and say, oh, i got to deal with these people. Jesus loved to minister to people. And He gets up, and Mark says in Mark 6.34, seeing a great throng, He had compassion on them, and begin teaching them. He yearned to teach people the Word of God. The Jew, Alfred Edersheim, he was converted. He said this about this moment. He said, every such opportunity was precious to him who longed to gather the lost under his wings. It was the depth of longing and intenseness of pity which now ended the Savior's rest and brought him down from the hill to meet the gathering multitudes. And the other Gospels tell us that he taught the people the Word of God about the kingdom of God till evening. He just kept teaching the people the Word of God, just kept teaching and teaching and teaching. And he had compassion on them because there was a great famine in the land, not a famine of food, but a famine of the Word. Amos says this in Amos 8.11. He says, The days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east, and they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. And because of that, Jesus had compassion on these people because he saw them like sheep without a shepherd because they weren't getting the word of God from the Pharisees and the Sadducees and in the synagogues. And my friends, it's the same way in the world today. There is a famine in the land of the Word of God. My heart is so burdened for this. I, I can't tell you how many messages I get from people during the week saying, I live in such and such town in Arkansas or 
Iowa, New Mexico, wherever, and I can't find a church which simply teaches the Word of God. It is a judgment on, of a country and a nation when people can no longer find the Word of God. People would rather entertain the goats than feed the sheep. And so I think what we need to endeavor to do at Capitol is to train men of God to go out and plant churches to feed God's sheep, to feed the Word of God. Our, my friend Jim Briggs, fellow elder here, talks about the idea of a training hospital. You know, in, in Britain and other places, you have these hospitals where people come and they train there, and then they're sent out to do medicine elsewhere. And, and you can apply that vision to the local church, that we become a, a place, it's like a working hospital where we're training people to minister the Word of God for the purpose of not keeping them here, but for sending them out into the world. Across this country and across the world where they are going to preach the gospel and preach the Word of God and proclaim the, His Word to a dry land. And this is Jesus' heart. It's compassionately teaching people the Word of God. And He's, of course, pointing people to Himself. And by the way, this is simply what the apostles did after Jesus ascended into heaven. They simply taught and preached the Word of God, the message of the gospel. I was reading this week the book of Acts, and Acts closes this way. These are the last verses of Acts. Paul's in prison in Rome, Acts 28.30. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him. Last verse, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. That's it. Teaching people of the kingdom of God and proclaiming Christ with all boldness. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation, to the Jew first and then the Gentile. So Jesus is teaching, and He teaches them the Word of God all day. Luke says, Luke 9, 12, now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to Him, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. Jesus wants the disciples to respond to the situation with compassion. He wants them to, to feel the need to minister to these people like He does. Look at the second part of verse 5. Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, look at verse 6. This is so fascinating. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Now, he probably asked Philip because Philip was from that region. Philip was from the town of Bethsaida, which was not far away. But Philip is also probably representative of the other disciples. It's so important to notice what Jesus is doing here with Philip and his disciples. John says that Jesus asked him this question to test him. Circle that word, test. 
It means to prove, to try, to test someone's mettle. At the end of boot camp with the Marine Corps, we have a final culminating event called the crucible. And the idea is we're going to test you to see if you can claim that title of Marine. It's that, it's that final test. And that's what Jesus is doing with his disciples. He's testing them. What's the test, you ask? The test is John 1.16. Will the disciples understand that it is only from his fullness that you can receive grace upon grace? That's the test. Will they understand that it's only Christ who can ultimately meet the need? Remember, they were there in the last chapter in John 5 where Jesus very detailedly explained that He is the Son of God, explicitly explained, in no uncertain terms that He was the Son of God. But yet, will the disciples acknowledge that and come to Him as the Son of God, seeking grace? Here's what you need to understand about this and about your own life. If you are a believer, you need to know that the Lord Jesus will test you. He tests His children, and He tests your faith. And He only does that for His children. He doesn't test the unbeliever. Let me give you a verse, Psalm 11:5. The Lord tests the righteous, but His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Isn't that interesting? It's the righteous. It's God's own children that He tests. James says, James 1, 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. How can we do that? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The Lord loves to test us and put us against the wall where the only recourse you have is God, where the only place you can go is Christ to receive grace upon grace. Tests are like spiritual weights for your soul. You, you go to the gym, and it's tough. It's hard. You're working out. But what happens? You get stronger. That's what tests are for the Christian life. They're, they're the, the workout of grace, where your faith comes out stronger after going through the test. And the way that the Lord Jesus works in the life of the believer is He's constantly leading you from one test to another to see if your faith will grow stronger and stronger. That's what you have to realize. Are you in a test right now? Who put you there? It's not Satan who, who's testing you. It's the Lord who's testing you. There was a, a man in England by the name of George Mueller. Anybody ever heard of him? He, he was a, a pastor, a minister of the gospel. He, he started all of these orphanages and all the, the Bible college, all these things. And the orphanages constantly had needs, needs for food, needs for money, all these things. 
and, and George Mueller said, you know what? I'm never going to tell anybody about the need. I'm simply going to resolve to go to God. And if the kids needed bread, he would pray. And guess what would happen? That very day, the bread truck would come by, drop off 50 loaves of bread. Oh, we're $1,000 short to pay the rent. He would pray. That very day, check comes in the mail. The testing of your faith, friend, produces steadfastness and endurance. So the answer in the difficulty is not to get all transfixed on the the problem. The answer in the difficulty is to look to Christ. Remember what we said? What's the principle? From His fullness is grace upon grace. Get your eyes to Christ. And this is what Jesus is trying to teach these disciples. Look at what Philip does. Philip fails the test. Verse 7. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. So Philip's answer is money. Lord, we, you know, here's the situation. 200 denarii, we could, even if we had that, I doubt they even had that much money, would only get people a little food. Uh, one denarius was basically a day's wage. So we're talking about a uh, eight months worth of a day laborer's salary here. And Philip says, that wouldn't get much for people. That, that's, like, that, that's like something just to, to whet the appetite. Andrew's recourse, and apparently with the other disciples, is they go sample the crowd to see if people might have food. Look at verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? So he went and surveyed the crowd and found this boy. We don't know what his age is. He could be anywhere from five to 15 years old. And this boy had brought with him five barley loaves. Now, a barley loaf was a type of bread that really a poor person ate. You know, we're talking about like a Miss Baird's bread. We're not talking about the, the luxury bread at your, at your fine sandwich shop. Uh, one commentator called these little loaves like little Twinkies, okay? So the, the, these, aren't, these aren't big pieces of bread. They're not, they're not necessarily bad tasting. They're just, you know, this is run-of-the-mill bread. And the fish were sardines. The, the fish were little pickled fish that you would basically smear on the bread uh, to improve the taste. So that's what, that, that was a very common thing in Galilee for people to eat pickled fish. That was just kind of the sunflower seed of the day, right? That's what they did for snacks. It, I guess, do you all eat sunflower seeds? Okay. Um, so Andrew says, but what are they for so many? You know, Jesus... <laughs> you know, this isn't going to fix the problem. So, here's the thing with the disciples. They get fixated on the problem rather than looking to the Lord Jesus Christ. A.W. Pink said, keep your eye on Him 
and your difficulties will not be seen. So Jesus is the Son of God. You come to Him. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He has the means to meet the need. That's what they need to learn, what we need to learn. So that's a spiritual failure. Now we see a sufficient feast, a sufficient feast. So, so far we've seen the, a superficial following, a spiritual failure, and now a sufficient feast. Look at verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. So he gives a command, and this was a desolate place, basically a desert-type region, and grass would have only been there in the springtime. In the summer, it would have dried up. But remember, this is Passover, so it's March-April time frame. And Jesus says, sit down there in, in the grass. And it says, now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And the other gospels tell us that they sat down in groups of 50. So they divided everybody up in groups of, of 50. And we're talking about a massive number of people here on this plane, between 15 and 20,000 men women and children. Could have been even more than that, actually. And Jesus tells them to sit down, to sit down. So, what do these people contribute to the miracle? Think about this. What do they contribute to the miracle? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. This is a picture of how we receive grace. What do you do to earn to receive to earn grace nothing therefore it's not grace if you have to earn it your job is simply to obey Jesus in faith that's exactly what we see here the people obey in faith they sit down in their groups of 50 and that's such a picture of salvation we're passive we don't earn it work for it we receive it just like these people are about to receive the food that Christ is to provide. Look at verse 11. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. That phrase, when he had given thanks, is one Greek word, eucharistio. You, you hear where we get our English word eucharist. It means to bless God to thank God. Jesus praises God for what God is about to do through Him. Remember, in salvation, it's all three persons of the Trinity that are working. God demonstrates His own love for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. The Father so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son. The work of Christ, the grace that Christ gives us, flows from the Father through the Son and eventually applied to us by the Holy Spirit. We must never separate the grace of Christ from God the Father. And that's what Jesus is demonstrating here by praising God. It's an important thing, by the way, to praise God before every meal. You know, we say we're going to bless the food. Uh uh, you bless God because He provided the food. If you're a, a parent or a grandparent, I, I know this is, you might think this is old-fashioned, but what, it, it, it's such an important lesson to teach your family, 
your children, that every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation due to change. Every gift you have in your life is a gift from God. And so we bless God, we praise Him for that. And Jesus then begins to multiply the bread. And it's really, we don't understand how this happens. Um, they, Jesus gives thanks, and it's like he starts breaking the bread and the fish, and it just multiplies and multiplies and multiplies in his hands after he gives thanks to the Lord. And there was constantly more bread and more fish. And the other gospels tell us that the disciples then went and distributed the bread and fish to the people. That is the role of ministry. Where does grace come from? John 1.16, Christ. Do, do we give grace to people? No, 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 no. You are not the answer to someone's problem. Who's the answer? Christ. What's your job in this world? To bring the message of Christ to the lost person. The disciples are distributing the food that Jesus has made. They're just the middleman. That's all we are. That's all I am. I'm the middleman. God gives grace through Christ, and I'm here to tell people about it. You will be my witnesses. That's what we are. We witness and testify to what God has done in the Lord Jesus Christ, reconciling the world to himself. That's all you have to do. It's so simple. God has done the work of salvation. Christ has died for sins. Christ has been raised from the dead. You just need to tell people about it. You bring the message of Christ to the lost person in the world. That's all the disciples do. Very simple. Verse 12, and when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. That nothing may be lost. I really pondered about this this week. Why does Jesus say this? You know, if I have leftover bread and I'm at a park, what do you do? Start tearing off pieces, throw it to the birds or something, right? Isn't that what you do? Go feed the ducks. What does Jesus say? He says, gather it. Gather it. Don't let any of it go to waste. Why does he do that? Why does he say that? He says it should be collected for good use. Let none of it be lost. I think here's the reason why. Because that bread was sacred. That bread was produced by Christ Himself. That bread was an evidence of grace. And what He's teaching His disciples is to revere and honor sacred things. American Christianity has dumbed down everything to where nothing's sacred. Where nothing's sacred. You walk into most churches and it's just fun, it's lights and smoke machines, and it's just come as you are. There's, there's really no requirement to humble yourself before a holy God and just go leave, and oh, by the way, just God loves you, 
and just go live your life the way you are. We have to have a reverence for the things that God calls sacred. Here's what I mean by that. One time I was in Ukraine, and I was preaching in a Bible college there and going and preaching in different churches. And this particular night, somebody else was preaching. And I sat down on the front row, and I had my Bible. And I put my Bible on the floor underneath my seat. And the Ukrainians near me stood up. I said, what are you doing? Why did you put the Word of God on the floor? And I picked up my Bible real quick, and I put it in the, in the pew next to me. So we don't do that with the Bible. That, that's a sacred book. We revere those things. God is a holy God. And we need to revere Him. The writer of Hebrews says that we worship Him with fear and trembling. And yes, He is imminent. Yes, Jesus is our friend. Yes, we have every reason to approach the throne of grace without fear. I'm not saying that. But it's important to reverence and fear and treat as sacred the things that God calls sacred. And that's what Jesus is teaching His disciples, and I think we need to learn that lesson, that God's Word. That's why I asked you earlier to stand when we read God's Word. Why? Because standing shows, hey, this is important. This isn't just the comics or a New York Times op-ed. This is the Word, God's Word. And the work of Christ is to be reverenced in every aspect of our lives. Verse 13, so the disciples gathered up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. You know, these are small wicker baskets, so this would have been the fragments of the bread and the fish, and I think it's 12 because Jesus has basically supplied the 12 disciples with their next meal. So now they got a, uh, a microwave dinner, if you will that they can take with them. Jesus has provided, and He has provided abundantly. There is food left over. And that's the point that John is making, is that Christ provides and meets every need to the fullest. So, are you in a place where you are waiting for God's provision? No. Write, write what you're waiting for down. This is, this is something that's so fascinating to do. Write your need down. And then watch God meet that need. Watch God meet that need. I say write it down because that way you'll remember it. And when He meets that need, you will see His abundant grace. So we've seen a superficial following, a spiritual failure, a sufficient feast, and then finally and lastly, a solitary figure. A solitary figure. A really interesting thing happens at the end of this story. Verse 14, when the people saw the sign, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. This is a reference to a prophecy that Moses had made in Deuteronomy 18.15 about a final prophet who would come, the prophet who would come. And the people see this incredible sign 
this incredible miracle, and they deduce that Jesus is this prophesied prophet. And I just want to pause here for a second. Notice that they claim it was a miracle. It was a sign, and that's why they deduce that Jesus is this prophet. For years and years and years and years, liberal preachers have explained this miracle this way, that what happened is the crowd came and heard Jesus teach, and in that crowd you had some people, the haves, who brought their dinners. And you had the have-nots, people like me, who forgot their dinner, showed up unprepared. You have the haves and the have-nots. And the miracle that Jesus did was an ethical miracle. They found a boy, and that boy was willing to share his dinner. And they held up that boy as an example. And that example caused the haves to share their dinners with the have-nots. Do you see it? So there's actually no multiplication of bread and fish. It's, it's just a moral example that Jesus leads them to. I say that because it's important. Verse 14 completely negates that. They wouldn't desire to make him a prophet if he just convinced people to share their dinners. They saw the sign and they said, this is the prophet who is to come. Now, again, they have right actions. He is the prophet who is to come. Wrong motives. Right, wrong. Look at verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him keen, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus knows that his kingdom must advance through the cross. It will advance no other way. Satan had already offered him a kingdom, and he had turned it down because he knew that the cross must come before the crown, always. It's the same in the Christian life. It's the cross first. When Jesus comes, it's the crown. Don't look for the crown in this life. Your commendation is from God, not from men. Here's what John Calvin said about this. He said, quote, If he had permitted himself to now be made a king, his spiritual kingdom would have been ruined. The gospel would have been stamped with everlasting infamy, and the hope of salvation would have been utterly destroyed. Jesus has his eye on the ball. He has his eye on the kingdom, just not their expectation of the kingdom. It's grace upon grace that comes from His fullness, and that grace can only be purchased through a bloody cross. But it's grace upon grace. It's Christ. And this is what He's trying to teach His disciples, and this is what He's teaching us. Where do you go when you need help? only to the throne of grace. And whose throne is it? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. For from His fullness we have received grace upon grace. Heavenly Father, we are spellbound by the lavish gifts that You have given us in Christ. 
that from your fullness truly is grace upon grace. And we know, Lord, that we did nothing to merit this, that it is all from your hand because you loved us and you had compassion for us. And it is a response to that grace this morning, Lord, that we worship you and praise you. I pray, Lord, for those that have never received your grace, that have come to you for the wrong reasons. I pray, Lord, this morning that you would prick their heart, that that we would repent and come to you for the right reason to find grace from your fullness. And we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.